Hello and welcome to Story Radio, the podcast for readers, writers and lovers of short stories. Today we'll be talking to Goran Baba Ali about his novel, The Glass Wall, and the press that printed it, Afsana Press. So Goran, could you tell us a little bit about um, Afsana Press and how you set it up? Uh, well, actually the idea of Afsana Press is... Uh, I think in 2010 or 11, I had the idea for, for a press to print Kurdish books in Iraqi Kurdistan, where I am originally from. Uh, but at the time, I mean, at the time, I published like a short novel by myself in the Kurdish language, and then I published another book for another author. But it didn't work, actually. And so I love the idea. Until last year, when I finished The Glass Wall, and then I thought, uh, wait a second, I, I still love that idea to have a, a publishing house, to run a publishing house and, and work with other authors. So why shouldn't I do that again, try it again, this time uh, in the English language? Because my, so my own novel, so The Glass Wall, I, I, I've written it in English. So I, you know, I, I, I studied how to uh, run a publishing house. Uh, I even followed the uh, training and researched the whole market and stuff like that. And so this, this is how I came to the idea. But then, so th- from the very beginning, the idea was not only a self-publishing company, uh, but also to publish for other authors. Uh, and that was hard. But, uh, so after the book, I, I contacted some friends first, people I know. And so it came to a collaboration now. I mean, uh, Miki, Miki Lenten is now a partner in the uh, enterprise, let's say. Uh, and we are now working on uh, broadening it to like some kind of uh, author collection even. Great, thank you. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed reading The Glass Wall. And um, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how that came about. Um, uh, actually, also, the idea for The Glass Wall is also uh, a bit old. Uh, in 2012, when I still lived in Amsterdam, and I remember then we had also some like a so called refugee. Uh, crisis. So at at the time, uh, there were many refugees, especially from Syria, but also from other parts, uh, especially in Turkey, and they were trying to come to Europe, and there was already like uh, 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 talks about a refugee crisis. Uh, But there was also, um, I, I, I was thinking for some time about this idea of uh, the difference between these two worlds of the so-called Western world, let's say, and the rest of the world, how um, how people in uh, countries with conflict and wars or whatever, economic problems or poor countries, how they look at the Western world as a beautiful, you know, setting and, and uh, developed, uh, safe world, but actually you can't reach it. It is, it is as if you walk, you, you look at it through a glass wall. But the problem is the other side, uh, it also boasts 
about you know what it is you you, you show off of uh, this serenity and and development and you know safety uh, I, I i lived iraqi kurdistan like i think 28 years ago so i became also part of this western world let's say so we what we uh, we show off with what we have but then we 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 don't have the an empathy for the for the other world i mean we understand it but a real empathy it is not easy to have and then i had that idea it's kind of like you are looking into a mirror we we saw ourselves and while the other side sees us so i had these ideas i was working with you know like a glass wall or the idea of a glass ceiling you know which is which which you can feel actually as uh, a human being as an individual in many things even you know like in a labor market you can feel something like that so and it, so it was a combination of two these two ideas that that glass wall so was the the kind of generalized mythological kind of uh, way of telling it always your starting point in the novel or was that something that kind of came developed as you were writing it what you are referring to as a mythological or mythical tone or voice probably in the novel i think that comes from the storytelling uh, because you know most of the stories at least the back stories are told by uh, so by the main character, the Arman, the asylum seeker in the novel. Um, but those stories are actually, he's telling them from his grandmother. So these were all stories he heard from his grandmother uh, and also the history parts from his father and grandmother. So these are stories that were for almost a decade, uh, for, for almost a century in in the family. So through these stories, he tells the st- the, the almost the story of his nation uh, since the beginning of the 20th century and so that is all storytelling and and an asylum seeker has to when 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 you apply for asylum you also have to tell stories so storytelling is actually uh, uh, the main issue in that mm. uh, novel mm. uh, so I thought um, how can I, I, I keep one voice from the beginning to the end whenever it's about uh, Arman, you know, behind that glass wall, which, uh, so this story is told by the author, right? Uh, but then without uh, a lot of authorial intervention, let's say, but then telling it through Arman himself, who is a 19-year-old boy. So how can I keep that voice uh, uh, telling about the story now and and also retelling or recounting the stories of his grandma so i think that is that is what it makes uh, the whole uh, the whole novel a bit mythical mm. if that is what you are uh, referring yeah. to but also also the the group he's a part of everyone has kind of their their names which kind of give it and um a lot of it felt to me a bit like kind of Waiting for Godot, that kind of uh, it, it was a generalized kind of not a it wasn't like you know you could say this is this is a particular place it kind of felt like a more universal exactly. universal place. That was my in, intention to have a universal story, not of one person coming from uh, a part of the world and going to a certain part of the world, um, but. It can be from anywhere. So uh, this refugee can be from anywhere where 
conflict is and where where there are reasons for uh, somebody to flee their country and the so the city behind the wall let's say the glass wall uh, that could be also anywhere um, of course both worlds uh, so in my head let's say or for my plot of course they they have roots in I mean you can you, you can find out where where they are but it doesn't matter so that is not important and that is why I also chose for no character having any name except for Arman the, mm. the main character the protagonist the rest are named by either their profession or what they or what they do or what they are things like that um, yeah I think that is what you mean and, and, and yeah. of course yeah, I can I can imagine that that uh, creates some kind of m- mythical atmosphere at least but also the events um yeah, and, and, and I, I like I like I like that you saw the Godot <laughs> waiting for Godot because this is indeed one of, one of the the stories that uh, was in my mind or had influenced me was Godot, but also some Kafka. Uh, so there is, I think, some Kafkaan some Kafkaan yeah. uh, atmosphere also in it. Did did um, were you influenced at all by the? Um, Thousand and One Nights and Shahzadas because that's what struck me in the sort of also structure. definitely yeah. definitely also the the st- I think the structure almost the structure is a bit the Thousand and One Night stories yes. uh, because th- that that is exactly what it is so this uh, Arman this guy this uh, asylum seeker has to tell stories to be uh, let into the city. So the guard behind the glass wall, uh, who's guarding, so the old man who's guarding the, the only uh, gate to the city, can't open the wall unless Arman tells a convincing story, and that is indeed this is this is the same in uh, One Thousand and Nights, uh, the Arabian Nights. The in English it's translated as the Arabian Nights. But I, I think that is the yeah hmm. that is the. Did you find there was any difficulties that you found from from t- taking that position rather than going for a kind of hard realistic narrative? I think it was yeah, it is challenging. It was really challenging, but also uh, also very nice to do it actually because that is writing. I mean, when when you struggle <laughs> with, with with something, especially the setup. So how can you set up a story like that? Uh, uh, and uh, try not ending up with you know with something s- simplistic, let's say, because it could be. I mean that that story, the, the the core of the story is very simple. I think the idea is very simple, so you can write it uh, into any kind of uh, story or style. But the the style I chose, uh, first of all, it is storytelling. But se- secondly, it is very symbolic. So almost everything in there is symbolic. I think from the glass wall itself to the guard to the refugee himself, but also all the events. I mean, the, you know, the, the animals come into it. Almost everything is symbolic yeah. in there. Was there an element of, um, like, um, Kurt Vonnegut, after experiencing the, Bres- the Dresden bombing, he was trying to write it, about it for years and years, and he kind of ended up not being able to write about it directly. So he sort of has five, is like this kind of, science fiction retelling in multiple forms was that an element that you were you, know, you found it difficult to kind of 
write about it directly? I think so. That's a good uh, reference, actually. I I think so because um, because some of some of the stuff, mind you, is I have experienced it myself, uh, probably in in different ways, like being being been in a desert for weeks. For I think I I spent uh, six weeks in a desert without food, with barely any food and drink. Not as a refugee in uh, another setup, but also uh, I am. So I am. I see myself as an ex-refugee. Let's say this is what I call myself, because I. So I came to Europe also as a refugee, like twenty-eight years ago. Twenty. Yeah, I think it's twenty-eight years ago, uh, and it is not easy to write that if it is not a memoir so if it is if if if, if you want to make it a fiction you need you need other characters you need other settings uh, and if that is what uh, you mean that's what your question i think uh, that made it yeah that made it extra difficult but therefore you need forms you need you need really like uh, because you are fictionalizing it so you need uh, so all all this form or the style we talked about. I think it is to to cover up to 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 make it not a, a memoir kind of thing or autobiographical, but very mm. fictional, right? So the ending, I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but um, it doesn't resolve neatly. Was that always your intention, or did you kind of struggle with different possibilities for the ending? Uh, I, yeah, yeah. From the beginning, I knew how it will end. Of course, yeah, it is very difficult to try not to spoil it and <laughs> and make sense uh, what I mean by that. I, the, I'm not sure if it isn't resolved neatly, because for for me, even it is a bit shocking or surprising ending. But I think there is some kind of satisfaction like vaguely satisfaction because at least somebody is uh, <laughs> uh, is happy of the result you know uh, although tragical for for the uh, for the protagonist or for the main character uh, but I th- I can imagine that it uh, it can dis- be disturbing for some readers but um, but I don't think it is it is very unsatisfactory yeah, I'm not saying it's unsatisfying. I just wondered, um, yeah, how much that was kind of always where you were heading or whether you were... Uh, it was yeah. my intention. Yeah. So it was my... You know, usually when I write, when I have a story, uh, actually, I can't write a story if I don't know the ending, I think. It is most of the time with me, it is, it, it, it's been always like that. So I know the, 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 the ending... And I tried, and I need also a good uh, start, but then I write into that, kind of. But yes, I, I definitely knew. And, and, and to be honest, it was also a lot of consideration to change it, um, because it is also, yeah, I know it's a problematic ending, but um, again, that is also, there is also some symbolism in, in, in that ending. And I don't want to promise anything, but um, my idea d- during writing the this novel, I knew the the story can be told in a trilogy. So somehow I also 
brought it to that end so that if I decide to write a sequel, I can take it from there. So that, mm -hmm. that was also some consideration that I finally <coughs> thought, no, I don't want to change it. I want to, I want to keep to this ending. <laughs> Mickey, if you can. So, I mean, the thing that I really liked about the book was the, like, I, mean, I think that the symbolism of the wall is, is interesting and nicely portrayed. Um, and to me, it just resonated a lot with, I think this, this issue that we have globally right now about sort of walls being constructed. We went through a period, you know, of walls being constructed after the Second World War and then being taken down in the 80s and 90s, but now being reconstructed. And there's more and more obstacles for people to move around, what with Brexit and with, you know, sending asylum seekers to Rwanda in this country and all kinds of other things happening globally and the war between Mexico and the United States. Um, it, it does it does resonate a lot with you. It's a very, very powerful image. And I suppose I, I, I'd be interested to know if, if that was also, was this, is your, are you thinking also of this as kind of like a message or sort of like a calling card to the world to stop and take notice of these issues that are happening a bit more? I guess so. I think, yeah, I think without, of course, we are, without being too political uh, to not, you know, ruin the uh, literary work. But I think, yes, I think my, uh, that was part of my intention to, to tell. Uh, if, if there's a message, if there's one message in it, it would be like, you know, whatever you can, whatever you do to prevent refugees coming to your country, or to your part of the world, uh, it's a futile effort, actually, because, because you are not solving, uh, uh, you know, the reasons, mm. that the problems that, are, that, make, that make someone flee their country, right? Mm. So if you don't solve that, there's no solution for uh, refugees coming to you when you are a safer and a better country. So that is, it is, it's, it's very humane, it, it, it's, it's a humane issue and it's a humanitarian issue. So I think the message, yes, would be, uh, uh, it's, it's senseless, you know, you can build walls, but people will always try to bore themselves into it or under it or whatever, they try. And one thing, uh, yeah, talking about the walls and stuff, indeed, so actually, Another kind of autobiographical part of it is like I, I also have lived one whole year behind the wall, uh, which was in Cyprus. I mean, I lived for almost a year uh, on the Turkish side of Cyprus in nine, between 1994 and 95. And so my whole, uh, so for a year, year long, I was hoping or I was looking for opportunities. How, how can I cross this wall? Because there was really and still is a wall between the, the two Cyprus. So at least in some parts, like in, in, in Nicosia, I lived in the Turkish side of uh, Nicosia, which, which is called Lafkosha. But then right behind that wall in my hotel room, and I see the wall all the time, and I can't cross it because they would shoot you, you know? And I have so many anecdotes about that wall and living there, which is, uh, which is uh, the subject of some other work. Uh, but um, yeah, but that was, so that was, so I had that experience uh, about 
a wall and living behind the wall, uh, uh, wishing for getting to the other side mm. for years. And, and so that was actually, that was also part so of choosing this story. Mm. So have you started working on the other parts of the trilogy yet? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Look, I'm very slow. I'm very slow in writing. So it can, it can take years again because this one took also yeah, about 10, 10 years to get it done. Uh, but yes, yes, I have, I, I have worked on the second one, but I don't think that will be my second book in English. Uh, so probably, yeah. The glass wall, for me, what I made me think of a lot as well is people looking at their smartphones or TV screens and seeing all these other worlds behind these screens and not being able to participate as well. It had that kind of um, had that kind of feeling to me of uh, how sort of technology lets people in at the same time. It sort of says, and that's as far as you go, you know. Um, exactly. So that's why I mean about this empathy because we can understand it we know all about it we can know all the details about the life of people in the rest of the world but do we have really sympathy uh, empathy actually so we can have sympathy right it is easy to have sympathy we are all human beings we have been in through uh, difficult things I mean anyone I mean the whole world went through this pandemic that gives us the ability, you know, to, to understand other people, to have sympathy. But I don't think if you don't go through something like what I try to show through this novel, like how is it for an asylum seeker coming somewhere and all these uh, dangerous, perilous journeys they make and that frustration that so easily we just say, sorry, you, you, you are not allowed to come in, you know? And so that is lack of empathy, I think. N nothing else. Otherwise, and, and that is, and the lack of empathy actually has uh, uh, led to all this kind of crazy ideas, policies, and, you know, to, to, to prevent refugees coming to you. Well, so the hostile that, environment and, um, and this new time. dreadful Rwanda policy being, you know, particularly... Exactly. Example of those lack of empathy. Exactly, and that is so the mirror in the the mirror symbolism. I think in the in, in the novel, you know, like they just see themselves reflected back exactly. at themselves. Exactly. Yeah. What is next for Afsana Press then? Well, actually, talking about Afsana Press, so um, <laughs> so so after my book, we published Miki's uh, uh, short story collection. Inner core, uh, and now we are working on a third book for another. Uh, she's also a Kurdish, uh, right? British Kurdish, actually. Choman Hardy is her name. Uh, so her novel is uh, in the editing phase, and hopefully by February, I think we have planned it for March next year. And after that, we have actually also a book by Miki, <laughs> a novel. A memoir. Oh, a memoir, maybe, actually. Maybe. We'll a memoir by Miki. Yeah. Would you like to t talk about that? Or? Um, we'd have to talk about it now, no. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to get you back. <laughs> so you've also got some 
the paperback and electronic version of the glass wall coming on? Yeah. Yes, so um, the paperback of glass wall would come, uh, I think, in, so we have planned it for around 14 September and the ebook in February next year. Right. Okay, thank you yeah. very much. That's great. You've been listening to Tabitha Potts, Martin Nathan and Mickey Lenton in conversation with Goran Baba Ali, the author of The Glass Wall. Now we're going to listen to a short extract from The Glass Wall, read by the writer. The young man stood up and hobbled to the glass wall, leaning on it with both hands. Exhausted, perspiring in his ragged clothes, he peered at the town on the other side. Honestly, this can't just be true. A gust of wind blew sand over him, clattering against the glass. He wanted to shout out, but his lungs felt weighed down and nothing came out. He started panting in the heavy, dry desert air. He stared at the glass wall that rose high in the sky above and banged his head on the glass. The sharp pain reminded him of the wound on his brow, from bumping his head on something hard a few days ago in the boat. There were other people as well, then a splash. He had fallen in the water. Splash. But what had happened before that, he couldn't remember. His sight turned black. He held to the glass and sat down at the foot of the wall. Eyes firmly closed, teeth clenched, he removed the rag from his head, put his sweaty palms to his forehead and felt a burning sting. He clenched his teeth harder until the pain slightly eased. Opening his eyes, he rested his hands on the glass again and stared at the unreachable landscape. The town seemed even further away. Right behind the glass barrier, just in front of him, stretched a wide asphalt road behind which the lake. On its far side, several boats, some with masts and sails, were moored in a semicircle. Shadowy human figures moved about on the boats and on the promenade. Their presence barely noticeable. From one side to the other, willows, magnolias, maples, shrubs, reeds and bulrushes encircled the lake and far, far away, to the left, a vast forest filled his view. The lush reflection in the lake of the buildings, the hills, the trees, the clean blue sky and the moored boats made the world behind the glass even more inciting. He pressed on the glass with all his strength, then banged on it vigorously. No trembling, not even a slight quiver in the hard glass. Only a dull clang resonated as if it was made of iron. He raised his fists again, but overtaken by a wave of nausea, leaned on the wall, his head resting on his forearms. Pounding wouldn't help anyway, when there was no one on the other side to hear him. Nothing will help, boy. Better to go back, shouted the harsh, metallic voice from nowhere. The young man flinched and turned, searching for the source of the voice. Nobody was inside. I wouldn't waste your time here. Better go back home, cried the voice again, sounding 
as if it came from a radio buried somewhere in the sand. The young man jumped up and limped along the glass wall towards the voice, frowning. The man spoke his language in a strange yet comprehensible way. His voice clung as if he was speaking into a tin. It was clear that it was not from a native speaker, so it must have come from the other side of the glass. About five meters away, there was a small salmon hut right behind the glass wall, with an iron door to the street. Another few steps and the young man came upon a hefty old man in a white shirt, sitting in the head behind the glass at a desk, peering into a large computer monitor. His grey eyes looked small behind his thick glasses that drooped over his nose. One hand clasped a mouse, whilst the fat fingers of his other hand spread over a keyboard. The young man took another step forward and put his forehead on the glass, careful not to hurt his wound again. The old man was surrounded by three bare walls and a low ceiling, with the iron door to his left. On the wall behind him stood a small white air conditioner. The fourth wall of the hut was the glass wall standing between them. A set of blinds was rolled up under the ceiling. The man behind the glass addressed the young man without diverting his eyes from the monitor. I would of course not want to meddle in your business, but I am warning you, whatever you try, you will not succeed. It's impossible to get in. The voice reached the young man through pinprick holes in the glass, arranged in perfect order within a circle with a diameter of no more than 15 centimeters. On the other side of the glass, behind the holes, a bowl-shaped speaker was fixed with a microphone dangling from it. Under the holes, there was a horizontal slot about 30 centimeters long, but so narrow that only a single sheet of paper could slip through. The young man brushed his fingers over the holes and along the slot, bent his head and held his ear close to the apertures. Listen, young man, said the old man, his metallic voice coming now directly to the young man's ear, which made him recoil. At the same time, he heard the old man's own voice inside the cubicle, muffled and in another language. The only way to be let in is to have a good story, the old man continued. The young man lifted his head and stared at the old man. What did he mean? Here is the procedure, the old man added, releasing the mouse, bothering at last to look at the young man. He took off his glasses and said, You tell me your story, I type it into this computer and send it on to the authorities. It's up to them to decide whether you pass or not. If they allow you to come in, I open the door for you. The young man looked more closely at the glass between them. There was indeed a rectangular outline in the glass about two meters high and less than a meter wide. It was a glass door held by a thin metal frame, hardly visible. No lock. And the glass was about five centimeters thick. He pushed on it, but the door did not move. How was that possible? How could it be locked without any lock? He hammered on it with all his strengths, but in vain. Don't get agitated, boy. It is said to log magnetically and can only be opened electronically. Only when your asylum request is granted will I get a code with which I can order the computer to open the door for you. But it's impossible to break it open, I'm telling you. 
The young man took a step back and saw his own faint reflection in the glass. Disheveled hair and a beard of a few weeks covered his bony chin and cheeks in a disorderly fashion. His tanned face was as dark as his arms, which stung from sunburn. The old man stared at him from the other side of the glass as if waiting for some reply. And when you are through the door, the man started again as there was no response from the young man. You are not in yet. He leaned forward and pointed to the space in front of his desk. Don't you see that you will end up inside the turnstile? The young man looked. There was indeed an enormous turnstile right behind the glass. Why all this? Why don't they just let him in and then ask him questions or whatever they wanted? Only me, with a push of this button, the old man said, moving aside, allowing the young man to see the large red button on the wall behind him. You see it, don't you? Only I can open it for you. But before that, I need permission, of course. So come up with your story, I suggest. The man paused and scratched his almost bald head. He straightened, then slumped in the chair, which rolled back on its wheels, his large stomach dangling in his lap. He squinted at the young man and continued. You look like the type who wants to try it anyway. My advice notwithstanding. Come on, try it then. Tell your story. He rolled himself forward on the chair, back to the desk, and bent over the keyboard. But I warn you, it's really a waste of time. You'll see. And boy, do something about that, he nodded at him, pointing to his wound. The young man pulled out a dirty handkerchief out of the pocket of his worn trousers and wiped the blood from his forehead, looked at the handkerchief, then wiped his brow again. Your chin too, the guard said, nodding. The young man watched his own reflection in the glass again and wiped his cheeks and chin, then returned the handkerchief to his pocket. He looked left and right, on either side, the glass wall stretched as far as the eye could see. We'll be back in September with a new short story for you to listen to. Meanwhile, if you're enjoying our work, would you consider supporting us via our Patreon? You can find it on our website, www.storyradio.org. Thanks so much for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>